Hi, welcome back to In The Pink. Um, thank you for your company. Thank you for your feedback on Nicholas Hamilton. He's so lovely, isn't he? What a great guy. Um, for those of you who don't know, he is doing a physical challenge, and one that you may not think is that hard, but for someone with cerebral palsy is really tough. He's walking 151 steps to represent the podiums his brother Lewis has achieved, and he is giving all the money to the NHS so that's fantastic if you can get behind him on that then brilliant Um, okay now I've had loads of interesting guests on In The Pink and my next one is someone who isn't a household name but is somebody who is a good friend of mine and a really interesting bloke and he has been at the heart of Formula One for many many years before switching over to W Series and he was there at its inception and has helped grow that all-female racing series Um, he's done that with great pride he's also proudly openly gay and actually possibly the first openly gay man in Formula 1 paddock let me know if you know differently but we're pretty sure that is the case Um, anyway look I'm not going to tell you any more about him his name is Matt Bishop Um, And I'm going to let him tell his own story and those of many people in Formula One, because I think any F1 fans out there are going to love his anecdotes. He's been in sport for years and has got some really interesting stories to tell. Here he is, Mr. Matt Bishop. Matt, thank you for joining me in these unprecedented times. It's kind of crazy, but we are joined by the power of Zoom, which is wonderful. And it means that we can have a good old natter and push this out as a podcast and share with the world some of your great stories from Formula One. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to um, be part of that. Uh, I've never Zoomed before. I have, <laughs> I'm a bit of a Luddite when it comes to uh, technology. I know you set it up, but I'm incredibly proud of myself that I managed to not <laughs> it up, if you don't mind. So anyway, here we are. And um, apologise for that light in the background. It's um, a kind of bit of... Uh, I don't know, art something or other in, I like my, it. I like in it. London. And uh, I don't believe for one minute you're a Luddite. You have been um, a major figure in Formula One for many years. Uh, you're not currently working in the sport at the moment. You're in the W Series, more of that later. But just tell me how you first came to work in Formula One and where your passion came from for the sport. Well, I started off uh, in the very early 90s as a a journalist and editor, editor of a magazine called F1 Racing. Not necessarily the most um, imaginative title for (laughs) a a, a magazine about F1 racing. But nonetheless, uh, in the words of Ron Seal, and we may come to another Ron later, but in the words of Ron Seal, it does what it says on the tin. So anyway, I got that job as editor of um, uh, F1 Racing. And of course, in those days, there was no such thing as a website or a a social media platform. And of course, the word podcast did not exist, badly. So when are we talking? uh, We're talking nine... Well, I actually started as a journalist uh, doing cars and, and motorsport and Formula One in about 91. But F1 Racing was launched in 96. Right. Became the editor of F1 Racing in 96. 
and we were the best. We... A long time ago. Well, have you not noticed this beard <laughs> and the fact that there's no other hair anywhere else? <laughs> uh, you are talking to a bit of an oldie. It, it is. It has to be said, but um, still, still going apparently strong so far. Anyway, I, so I did that. That was uh, 1996 F1 racing. There was no such thing as any. So magazines were the most important thing. Magazines and newspapers, because there was nothing else. There was nothing. There was no digital anything. So yeah, it was. It was. Um, and our magazine was successful. I hired some great people, um, many of whom are still working in the sport. You will know them. People like uh, Peter Windsor, Tom Clarkson, uh, Darren Heath, the great photographer, um, and many others. And other ones that aren't protected potentially perhaps so well known to your uh, viewers because they were the backroom boys and girls, the, the great people who put the magazine together and designed it and subbed it and, and made it successful. And I just rode on, the, on, the, on the, their coattails and collected some of the glory. Um, and um, it was huge fun. I mean, there is no job better in terms of pure fun. There are better paid jobs, and I have had some better paid jobs, I must admit but there are no jobs better than having your own magazine that is covering a subject you love and being able to write, commission, and publish whatever the hell you want on that subject. Ah, oh, it was joy, pure and joy. Where, where did that love come from? Where, when did you first well, realize you had such a passion for Formula One? Well, that's a good question. A lot of people, when they are, a lot of our friends and colleagues, whether they're drivers or mechanics or journalists or broadcasters or whatever, a lot of them say, oh, my dad took me when I was a little boy to Brands Hatch or Silverstone or Alton Park or whatever it is, or Monza or Manucor or wherever. But no, not with me. My father was and is a musician. Uh, and um, my mother, God rest her, um, was a writer. But none of them had the faintest interest in Formula One. I think they probably had heard of Formula One. And that was about it. I'm not even absolutely sure they had, because in those days, of course, it wasn't on telly in the same way as it is today. But I remember um, going into a newsagent in about 1972 to pick up Shoot, which was um, the football weekly for kids, which was, which was one of the things I got on my, for my pocket money. So I would have been nine, uh, nine, nearly ten. And I saw this thing on the, on the, where all the other magazines were, I saw this thing and I carefully read the word to myself, auto sport. I thought, I wonder what that is. I already liked cars and I could point out cars when I was walking down the street, Austin, Cambridge, Morris Oxford, Ford Corsair, all these things that no cars are called anymore. I know I'm making myself sound ludicrously old, but they, they were petrol engines, they weren't steam engines, I promise you. <laughs> anyway, um, I picked up this thing called Auto Sport, and inside it had uh, various things, and it had uh, a report of a thing that was a car race, a motor race. I didn't know they existed. And a man called Jackie Stewart had won it. And I thought, my goodness. And that was 12.5p, so I, I paid 12.5p for my Auto Sport. And honestly, Pinky, I was hooked thereafter. I just was. It was just me. I realized that. In fact, I, I didn't know anybody else who knew about it. I'd never heard of it. I thought that this strange thing had been invented purely to entertain the eccentric nine-year-old that was me. 
Aha, the eccentricity. So is that what appealed to you, that you, you discovered something that previously hadn't been? Well, yes. And, you know, and, and I went to school. People, some people said, oh, yes, I've heard of Jackie Stewart. I haven't. But very few. You have to realise it wasn't on the telly in 1973. It was not even on the television. It was not reported in the newspapers. If you wanted to find out who'd won the 1973 uh, British Grand Prix, which, of course, you know, was Peter Revson, obviously, um, you, you, would, um, you would have to wait till Monday morning and buy the Daily Telegraph. Not a lot of nine-year-olds buy the Daily Telegraph, even in those days. And then you'd see it in four point at the very back, probably not even a report, it might be a report for the British Grand Prix, but for let's say the Argentine Grand Prix or the Italian Grand Prix, there wouldn't have been a report. And it would just say, one, Emerson Fittipaldi, two, Ronnie Peterson, three, uh, Jackie Stewart. That would be it. It wouldn't say who was fourth, fifth and sixth. It wouldn't say who had, um, led the first 62 laps before they had an engine failure, it might not even say who had been killed. That's how weird that world was. But I, I found it extraordinary. And here we are, getting on for 50 years later. And you made that transition from editor of the magazine to working for a team. Just tell us that story, because it's quite extraordinary. Well, that came out of... Um, so I'd worked, I'd been editor of F1 Racing and then also a director of Haymarket, which used to be the publisher of F1 Racing and Autosport, in fact. So that thing that I found when I was nine, I ended up being editorial director of. Strange. That's um, not strange. That's, that, that, that sums you up. Well, it's very odd, isn't it? It's very odd. and ambition. It's amazing. There you go. There you go. And... And I'd done that for 11 years. And obviously, during the course of that time, we'd grown the magazine, made it very good, very successful, which had been done on the back, really, of people, kind of people I've mentioned, uh, who were magnificent uh, staff that I had uh, alongside me. And we, therefore, got to know everybody in the sport, because we were the magazine that you needed to be interviewed by, because we were the biggest and the best and all the rest of it. Sorry, I don't mean that to be arrogant. It's absolutely... Well, the sales means that we were the biggest and the best is the result of the efforts of people like Tom Clarkson and Peter Windsor and Darren Heath and so on and so forth. I just happened to be um, working with them. But, um, of course, therefore, we got to know everybody. And for some reason, I got to know Ron Dennis very well. Um, Ron Dennis isn't everybody's cup of tea, of course. I didn't necessarily think he was going to be mine. Perhaps he isn't even my cup of tea, but I do know him. And for some reason, we got on very well. And I think he began to think of me as um, some kind of uh, good thing or a, 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 the, the, the kind of acceptable side of journalism. And I think I realised that he um, quite liked... Um, if you're a journalist, you should be intellectual. If you're a mechanic, you should be mechanical. And Ron likes people to sit in their right boxes in that way. So I can do a very good impersonation of being, let me tell you. And I used to plumb the absolute depths of my vocabulary, lexicon, I would have called it if I was talking to Ron, of course, um, in order to impress him. And in the end, after many, many years of interviewing him and chatting to him and having dinner with him at races and in hotels and 
um, he offered me a job. And he offered me, he first offered me a job actually at the Manucor French Grand Prix of 2001. But it wasn't the right job, it wasn't actually the right money, to be fair. And I was very happy doing what I was doing. So I said, no thanks. So there was a thing called Spygate in 2007. And many of your viewers may know all about it. So I'll just quickly say what it was, was that McLaren, or in fact a McLaren employee, um, had been caught in possession of 780 pages, quite a lot of pages, of Ferrari technical drawings, IP, intellectual property. And it was a big, big scandal. And the FIA was unimpressed. Uh, and the FIA, in the end, fined uh, McLaren $100 million. This is, of course, public record. And what then needed to happen to McLaren, which could fortunately pay the $100 million, teams, big Formula One teams, can you imagine? It's not that long ago, 13 years ago, but they were able, they had $100 million washing around, you know. Um, the very idea of that happening now, just not possible. Anyway, it was possible. So the fine was paid. and. Can I just ask, who's the fine paid to? Well, it was paid to the FIA, and the FIA then spent it. I mean, you'd have to ask the FIA exactly what they spend every single last cent of it on. But they did uh, a number of road safety initiatives and so on and so forth. I mean, I, mm. I can't exactly remember every detail. It's a lot of money, though, isn't it? It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of road safety you can get out of that. Yeah. But I, I hope it was wisely spent. Um, and if it did, by the way, uh, um, increase road safety and reduce uh, deaths as a result of road safety, then it was one money well spent. So I'm not going to argue about it. Anyway, it went, it, that's where it went. Um, and the next obviously important problem was to rebuild McLaren's reputation because there had been a problem, you know, uh, to, have, to have been found guilty in that sense. And Ron and McLaren had very good PR stuff, but they didn't kind of have uh, a, a, a grizzled um, and um, hard-bitten uh, spin doctor type uh, communications PR strategist. And I suppose I would vaguely claim to be one of those. So Ron hired me, and that was a, a, a hefty salary hike, which was very good. And I then worked as a director of McLaren for the next 10 years. And, and also absolutely fantastic time. I and mean, you're probably gonna ask me some of, some, a bit about that and a bit of, about the people I, I spoke to. So I'll shut up and let you ask. To give your personal story some more depth, um, you are, well, to my knowledge, the only openly gay man working in Formula One. I mean, I'm sure there are others, um, but not to my knowledge. Do, do you know if there are? Well, very interesting question. Um, when I arrived in the early 90s, I was definitely the only gay in the F1 village, the only one. Not that we used that, uh, that phrase, the only gay in the village in those days, but I was. And I always decided, you know, what am I going to do here? Um, I know I've joined a very male, very heterosexual world. And am I going to be closeted, as I assumed there must be others? Or am I just going to be not out and proud and, and screaming from the rooftops and going into the paddock wearing a pink tutu, which is not really my style anyway, and which I wouldn't um, 
set off in a very elegant way. So um, I decided, no, I'll just be open. If I'm asked, I'll be open. I won't go straight and say, morning, Michael Schumacher, very nice to meet you. I'm gay, by the way. <laughs> but what I will do is if asked or if it becomes obvious or if somebody says, are you married or do you have kids? I'd say, no, I'm, I'm gay. Um, and that's what I did begin to do. And I'm told that there were some people who were, um, uh, who disapproved and who um, made homophobic remarks, but they only made them behind my back. Nobody ever made them in front of me with one exception. Uh, but I really can't tell you the exception. I oh, come have. on. No, I, can't. I can't. I will tell you that it was a driver. It was a Formula One driver. And he um, verbally uh, abused me and shouted the word, word fag, faggot, shouted the word faggot a number of times at me. Um, anyway, I'm not going to say who it was, but uh, it, it was, um, it, th those, that sounds such an extraordinary thing to happen now, doesn't it? It's so long it ago. Does. And it actually makes me think he's probably gay himself. Well, uh, he, he isn't apparently, no. Ah! Thought you were about to out someone then as well. Oh, no, 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 no. Anyway, your, your question was, am I the only gay in the village now? I mean, I, I'm probably not. I, I know there are some journalists, there are some other marketing people. I'm sure there are lots of people that one doesn't know about as well. Who perhaps, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. You know, there may be, you know, cooks and chefs and various other people that one doesn't know about. In terms of senior people or people who have been senior in teams and so on, um, perhaps I still am the only one. OK, time for Bose's handy tips about how we can all cope a bit better over the next few weeks and potentially months um, under lockdown. I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? We just don't know how long this is going to last and that lack of control over our own lives can let anxiety creep in. But hopefully, if we can all follow these little nuggets of advice... It may just help. Okay, first of all, take time for yourself to stay centred and sane. Number two, seize moments of calm. They may be few and far between, but they are out there. You just need to grab them with both hands. Number three, find your sanctuary away from the chaos. Now, if, like me, your whole house is chaotic, then that might be hard. But there must be a little corner somewhere where you can take yourself off and just have a moment or two. Because, remember, timeouts aren't just for kids. It's really important to take a little me time because it can go a long way. I know that sounds a bit selfish because I always feel guilty if I go off and read a book or listen to some music or have a bath, all three at the same time. But I think and hope that we all come back to our jobs in the house with the kids, with our family, as better mothers, better partners, more productive if we have taken a bit of time out. Cabin fever is real. So one way to smash that oppressive feeling is to learn something new. Take up a new hobby, for example. Don't resist and fight the new norm. Embrace it. Shape it to suit you. For example, you could move rooms, change the layout at your home, create a new space dedicated to a new hobby. Make working for home work for you. Don't be afraid of the silence, if indeed it exists at any point during your day. It can be truly golden after all. Try to block out unhelpful noise and that will also reduce your anxiety. 
It's not where you work, it's how you work. So make it work for you with a little bit of help from Bose. Feel more, do more, be more with Bose. But just just explain what it's been like, because I was, I'm always asked about Formula One, I always asked whether, you know, it really is a kind of misogynist world of sexist pigs. And, and I always say the same thing, which is that it's a meritocracy and that actually it's pretty forward thinking people, very, very bright people with passion, you know, perhaps with the exception of me, but the very bright forward thinking people who actually are very inclusive, regardless of your, your background, your sexuality, your gender. And as long as you work hard and you're passionate, then you will be accepted. Was that your, your experience being gay in Formula One? Yeah, that was my experience. With the one exception, um, the, who I will not name, um, I have always been treated with, um, I'm going to use an unusual word, but with love. I have um, hugely uh, enjoyed my long, long time in, in Formula One. And of course, I still work in motorsport, the W Series. But um, I've, I have enjoyed it. I continue to enjoy it. I've made fantastic friends um, at all levels and in, in all disciplines. And I have all, I've never encountered any uh, homophobia at all, with that one exception. Some people tell me that there's been the odd, you know, tongue wagging in the, it, behind my back. That wasn't supposed to be an innuendo, by the way, but there you go. You know? and, um, and if that has been, I didn't get to hear it. But I'm going to tell you something else, because I think it's quite interesting. When I arrived in Formula One, yes, I was the only gay in the village of any seniority or, or, at all, I think. Uh, perhaps the only one that was out at all, actually. Um, and now, of course, there are um, gay or LGBTQIA+, as one should call them, marketers, PR people, uh, journalists, and so on and so forth. And in those disciplines, in those professions, I think it's fine. I still think it's actually rather difficult for mechanics and engineers. And that's one of the reasons we started um, Racing Pride, which I'm uh, uh, active in and uh, uh, one of the founders of. And um, Racing Pride is really to help people, mechanics and engineers, who, who, who still find it quite hard. And I remember when I was at McLaren, there would sometimes be a young mechanic or engineer who would kind of sidle up to me, perhaps um, in a hotel or perhaps at the factory or perhaps, you know, uh, in transit for a long flight and would begin to talk and would then say, do you know, I, I, I'm gay, I'm gay, but I can't come out. I can't come out. I can't come out. They wouldn't like it. They wouldn't like it in the, uh, uh, you know, the, the other mechanics wouldn't like it. Um, we, we have to share rooms. I don't think that would make it particularly popular with my roommate. Um, uh, it's, it wouldn't work. How can you be out? And I'd say, well, I, I think you can just come out. Coming out is a, is a very um, liberating thing to do. And I actually think you're mistaken, young man. I think you're mistaken. I think that perhaps that was the case 20 years ago, but I actually think that it is increasingly... Um, accepted to be LGBTQIA+, or gay, or whatever you want to call it, um, even among um, uh, uh, you know, professions or demographics where uh, they're not widely 
represented. And I am proud of Formula One and I'm proud of the team I worked for, McLaren. And I'm proud of everybody who sails in McLaren. And I, and I love the people at McLaren. And I personally think that if uh, a young mechanic or engineer came out in McLaren, or by the way, I got approached sometimes by people from other teams because I was known to be the only gay in the village. So I might get a, you know, a, an email from a private Hotmail account from someone who works at Jordan or Williams. Oh, doesn't that just show they needed someone to talk to? That makes my I heart know. So, in fact, there are two countries where it is legal for, for males to have sex with each other, which is Abu Dhabi and Singapore. But out of the 200 countries in the world, about 200 countries, I think about half of them, or just under half, about 80, it's still illegal um, for men to have sex with each other. And, and, and so I think there is a battle that still needs to be waged. And uh, Racing Pride just does its... its its small little role to make things easier for principally engineers and mechanics, and also, by the way, young drivers, young carters, um, where uh, they have um, uh, uh, encountered uh, some prejudice, which includes, of course, young female carters. We have um, in W Series, which, as you know, is for women drivers only, and we have two out lesbians, um, Sarah Moore and Abby Eaton. And both of those have talked a little bit in the, about having um, found things a little bit harder uh, when, they were, when they were growing up through the ranks. And, and now, of course, they're both uh, engaged as ambassadors uh, of uh, Racing Pride, and I'm very proud that they are. That's great, that's great. Uh, tell us a bit more about W Series and your reflections on the inaugural year and uh, how much pride you've taken in being a part of that process, um, really from the inception. Yeah, I had a phone call from David Coulthard. Now, of course, I've known David Coulthard for years and years and years. And he said, are you still kind of not doing an awful lot? This was uh, kind of very early 2018. And uh, I'd left McLaren in the summer of 2017. So I said, well, I'm doing a bit of consultancy here and there. Why? He said, well, I'd like you to do a bit of consultancy for me and my mate, Sean Wadsworth, and also Catherine Bonmure, um, who are the three of us setting up a thing called W Series. Have you heard of it? I said, no. He said, good. You're not supposed to have heard of it. It's supposed <laughs> to be a secret. I said, good. So anyway, he explained it all to me, and then Sean Wadsworth and then Catherine Bonmure also explained it all to me on three separate occasions. And I admit at first I was a little bit sceptical. Uh, you know, I'd had a quarter of a century in Formula One working with, you know, very, very closely with the likes of Lewis Hamilton, Jensen Button, Fernando Alonso, Ron Dennis, you know, and winning world championships with them and, you know, McLaren still now, but absolutely then, a complete destination job for anyone who isn't Italian. Uh, and even quite a few who are, because there's a lot of Italians in Weybridge, by the way, uh, which is near Woking. Anyway, so um, I was a little bit uh, sceptical. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll do a bit of consultancy, and I did. Uh, but I, was con I, I didn't know how good the drivers would be. Uh, I hadn't heard of very many of them. By the way, we hadn't even hired any yet or enlisted any. We, we were just, we, we were at the very beginning. We, had, we were a startup that hadn't yet started up. 
And I was also, you know, Formula Three cars, Formula Three cars with women drivers. I was, I was skeptical, but I thought I'd, I'll give it an absolute. Um, I'll, I'll give some consultancy days. Anyway, very soon, I was absolutely smitten with it, and I am now an evangelist for it. I think it's the most wonderful thing, and you, you may not believe me, but I promise you, it's true. I've had some wonderful moments in my career, including my Formula One career. You know, I was in the garage at Interlagos, screaming myself hoarse in 2008, when Lewis Hamilton won the world championship on the last corner of the last lap of the last race. I was there and I've been working incredibly closely with Lewis all year, but I've actually had experiences at W Series in our inaugural season, which was last season, which I would rank with that in terms of the emotion uh, of, well, getting that startup started. You know, I remember standing on the grid at Hockenheim, which was our first race in May 2019, and seeing all the cars go off on their uh, parade lap and then coming into view, going around the last turn and forming up on the grid and looking at Catherine Bonmure, floods of tears she was in actually. And uh, I was welling up and she just turned to me and she said, we did it, we did it. And then off they went and there was a great motor race. And, you know, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up as I tell you that, because it was a tiny team, an abs it's still a small team, but it was an absolutely tiny team then. And we had nothing. We had a brand called W Series that nobody had heard of. We didn't have a driver, we didn't have a car, we didn't have anything, but we created something and we went motor racing. And we were live on television in many countries. Uh, we were on television, not always live, but on television in over a hundred countries worldwide. Amazing. And we were available to 340 million households worldwide in year one. And that was with a tiny little team. And it's a, one of the highlights of my career, yes, absolutely. And they're great girls, they're fantastic. They really are. And they've got a great person in you getting behind them. It seems to me there's a bit of a theme here, actually, Matt, You're a bit of a trailblazer, history maker, if you will, in terms of <laughs> helping out uh, young gay men and women come to terms with their, their position within motorsport and now getting women well and truly on the map. Is that something that you're aware of? Is that something that you strive for? I don't really think so, no. I think, um, uh, um, I think maybe the, 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 because I was seen as a, a bit of a talisman for gay men, I think some of the, um, the, the young engineers and mechanics saw me as someone to go and seek advice from. Yes, I think that was the case. As regards women, um, I think W Series landed in my lap and, uh, uh, and I realized not initially, as I said, but after a, you know, quite a short time, a few weeks, what a magnificent thing it could be and how big and how good we could make it. Mm. Didn't have to be a small thing. It could be a huge thing. And, uh, you know, obviously <laughs> the world is in a funny place at the moment. So we don't know exactly what shape or size our season is going to be in 2020 because of the coronavirus. Uh, and that applies to every single not just motorsport, but every single sport in the world. So there's, there's no point trying to make predictions about that. But all I will say is that we had a great first season. Mm. And 
on the map, we've launched it, and we mean to go on. Yeah, I mean, as you say, just thinking with my F1 cap on, you know, we're hearing the calendar is absolutely decimated already. Um, three more races going today, or at least being postponed today, Monaco, Spain, and Holland. Um, do you think that W Series has the strength to weather this storm? Uh, we, we, um, all I can say about that is that we are an officially ratified FIA championship. Um, we race on the DTM, German Touring Car, and Formula One platforms. Uh, that's where our eight races are scheduled for 2020. I'm not going to tell you which ones are or aren't going to take place uh, any more than Formula One could tell you. I mean, as you say, this very day they have changed they've made an announcement that there's a further three. So who knows what might happen? There's a thing called the Olympic Games later this summer. Who knows what might happen to that? So I, I couldn't say that. What I do know is that W Series has um, hit the ground running. It's engaged fans all over the world. We have now sponsors. We have huge media interest. We have great drivers. We have a great championship. And as soon as motorsport is going again we want to be going again in the pink and bows really want to help during this lockdown now whether we can or not is another question but we can try and we're going to do that by giving away some more bows noise cancelling headphones to win them just share mini anecdotes from your time in lockdown and give us some feedback on this series. Always put in the hashtag Bose and tag in a couple of mates to do the same. And you never know, those headphones could be yours. Good luck, stay safe and stay connected. Um, now, uh, you touched on it that you've worked with Jensen, Lewis and Fernando. You must have some juicy little anecdotes <laughs> on those three that we can round off this podcast with. Okay, well, let me start with Lewis because Lewis is Lewis, isn't he? Lewis is um, the biggest star in the sport, arguably, probably one of the biggest sports stars in the world, uh, and arguably, therefore, probably one of the biggest motor racing stars that there has ever been. He's also a brilliant driver. All of that is not uh, subject to argument. Everybody knows all those things. Some people don't like him very much, or some people... He, he's a bit of a Marmite person, isn't he? Someone that you um, either love or, or don't love. Um, well, I love him. I think he's an absolutely wonderful person. Um, he's actually also got a very, very good heart, which people don't always realise. They only often see the Instagram version, um, you know, with his eccentric uh, uh, sartorial choices and so on and so forth, which, by the way, I couldn't give a damn about it's up to him what he wears and actually I think he looks quite cool not that he would care what I think but anyway who, who, are, who are any of us to 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 um, criticize what he wears nonetheless people do and um but but I think he's a, he, he's a great guy with with a good heart I'm going to tell you a little anecdote it's not a funny anecdote but it's a, it's one of those ones that um tells you a little story about a person so my mother died uh six years ago um died of cancer. And she was a writer. And it so happened that Lewis had spoken to her on the telephone once. And the reason he'd spoken to her on the telephone was that I was uh, briefing him, giving him a media briefing. And then I had to go away for some reason. I said, Lewis, just wait there. I've got to go away. This is obviously when I was at McLaren. And 
when I went away, my phone rang and he saw mum on my phone. So he answered it. He said, hello, you must be Matt's mum. I'm Lewis. It took her a little while to work out whether it was somebody having a joke. Anyway, she was already uh, fighting cancer at that time, but she was completely compost mentis still, although physically debilitated. But she, she, she then realized it was him and had a very good chat. I came back, he'd already rung off, hung up, and he didn't tell me. So I carried on doing the media briefing and I only found out from my mum. Maybe the next day when I spoke to her, I said, hi, mum, how are you? And she said, nice of Lewis to, to talk to me. I thought, oh my God, she's gone do Lally. What are you talking about, mum? Anyway, she, she explained. Anyway, that, that was when we were at McLaren. And then when she died, which was just on the Thursday before the 2013 German Grand Prix. Now, by this time, of course, Lewis was driving for Mercedes-Benz. I was still at McLaren, so we weren't even in the same team anymore. So I didn't go to that race, obviously, because my mum had just died, literally, on the Thursday before it. So I rang um, my colleagues uh, and Steve Cooper, my very close colleague at McLaren at the time, and said, mate, can you tell everybody that I'm not going to come to the race because, unfortunately, my mum passed away just now. He said, oh, I'm so sorry, mate. I said, yeah, fine, yeah. Could you just pass it on? So after a little while, I began to get the odd text message from friends, including you, dear Pinky, and other people, um, uh, colleagues at McLaren, people in the media, various people, sending me the odd um, uh, uh, condolence text message. Anyway, I was then sitting that evening at 10 o'clock at night, UK time, 11 o'clock at night, German time, in my mother's house, and her body was still lying there and aunts and uncles and uh, cousins and neighbors and friends were all there having a drink, paying tribute. Her body was going to be taken out by the undertaker the next day. Sorry, this is a bit maudlin, but there's a reason for me telling you all this. And at 10 o'clock our time, 11 o'clock German time, my phone rang, Lewis Hamilton. So I answered and I was very surprised. Remember, we didn't work together anymore. I said, Lewis, uh, 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 I'm, I'm not in Germany. He said, I know you're not in Germany, Matt. I know you're not. I've just heard this very minute that your mum passed away today. So I just want to pass on my condolences to you and to your family. And if you happen to be with any of your family, as we are speaking now, please tell them all that I will remember your mother in my prayers tonight. God bless her and God bless you. Now that is seriously first-class behavior, isn't it? That's lovely. Seriously first-class behavior. And that is the side of Lewis that people don't always see or don't even know exists. But I'm, I like telling that story because it doesn't have <laughs> pull people up short when they start telling me that he's not a good guy or he's a twat or whatever people say. What? He's a fantastic guy and, and I, I, I have an enormous amount of time for him. That's lovely. That really wonderful. Um, what about Jensen and Fernando? God, it's, you set the bar quite high. I'm not sure they're going to beat that one. Well, I, I, I know Lewis better than I know either of them, actually. Um, uh, I worked probably more closely with Lewis than either of those. I'll, I'll, I'll actually say one um, a little story about Fernando, which goes back quite a time, actually, before I was at McLaren, because I joined McLaren in January 2008. And this was in the late summer of 2007. And it goes back again to Spygate. So the drivers at McLaren 
were Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso first time round. And by that time, it was the Hungarian Grand Prix. And the whole Spygate scandal and controversy was at its absolute height. And there used to be a thing called Meet the Team, perhaps there still is, a thing called Meet the Team at McLaren, which is after qualifying on a Saturday afternoon. And sometimes, you know, a couple of dozen journalists would turn up. But this was Spygate. So there was standing room only. It was absolutely chock-a-block. Remember, I was one of the journalists. I hadn't yet joined McLaren, or I was very soon to do so. And the press conference began, and it was... Ron Dennis and Norbert Haug, who was the motorsport director of Mercedes-Benz at the time, Mercedes-Benz being the engine partner of McLaren at the time, and the two drivers, um, Fernando Alonso and Lewis Hamilton, except Lewis didn't turn up. Lewis had gone to the stewards instead to grass Fernando up for the mess up in qualifying, if you recall. Um, Fernando had deliberately slowed and impeded and delayed Jensen. Sorry, I mean Lewis, Lewis. So anyway, it was very, and that's what all the journalists wanted to ask about. And, and there was a, a really, really tense atmosphere. Now, one of the things, if you know Ron well, and you have worked with him well, is that he's very precise about everything. He, called, he admits to being OCD about cleanliness. And one of the things he absolutely loathes above almost everything else, is people who eat juicy fruit without a knife and fork. So if you're eating a nectarine or a peach or a plum, Ron wants you to put it on a plate and have a sharp knife, steady it with the fork, cut it with a sharp knife, and then put small, neat pieces of the fruit into your mouth with the fork. <laughs> Fernando arrived with, I think, the largest and ripest peach I have ever seen. And he just sat next to Ron, like that, and letting all the juice run down into his beard and leaving the bits of fruit pulp in his beard and just letting it go down and making slurpy noise. Not everybody present would have known quite how painful Ron would have been finding that but believe me Fernando did Fernando was uh, definitely on a number there with Ron and very deliberate yes I love it I love it absolutely, absolutely. Oh, that's Fernando oh. Fernando is a great driver great driver he's also an operator yeah um poor Ron how is he going to be coping with coronavirus <laughs> Well, he, he washes quite a lot at the best of times. I know, that's what I'm thinking. This will be freaking him out. Freaking well, hopefully he will be in the clear because, you know, you're supposed to wash your hands every 20 minutes. And he does that anyway. Service resumed for Ron. I don't want to wash my hands of you. I want to talk to you all night. In fact, I'd quite like to open a bottle of red wine and just carry on this conversation to the small wee hours. But uh, we have to wrap things up there. Matt, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Can we do this regularly, please? Absolutely. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Pinky. I, one of the things I say about uh, Formula One, I mean, I have loved my time in Formula One. I love being in motorsport. The thing I love, sorry, the thing I miss most about Formula One 
is my mate and you're certainly one of them and I miss you very much so miss you too good to see your face thank you Matt Bishop for your time um, do follow him on Twitter especially if you're a complete F1 Kino because his knowledge is encyclopedic and he does this lovely thing on Twitter where he says on this day in 1972 or whatever the year and he brings back lovely memories uh, he also remembers great races through the years um, yeah as I say there's nothing this man doesn't know about Formula One so he is a pleasure to talk to um, loads more great guests coming up and loads more chances to win those Bose noise cancelling headphones make sure that you share your stories of lockdown with us we all know it's a strange time and so it's important for us to keep communicating keep talking and um, add the hashtag Bose if you want to be in with a chance of winning some of those headphones um, for now it's goodbye from me but loads more great guests on the way including Sir Jackie Stewart David Coulthard and uh, for the world of rugby Will Greenwood and Jamie Roberts to name but a few um, until then I'll speak to you soon stay home stay safe and stay connected this is Acast Recommends Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Is Facebook really evil? How do you secure your video conferences? And can you protect your privacy and still help fight the virus? Listen to DTNS and find out. We know keeping up with the latest in tech news isn't easy, especially now. That's why we do the Daily Tech News Show. I'm Tom Merritt, along with my co-host Sarah Lane, producer Roger Chang, and our regular contributors. We deliver insightful, informed analysis of what's happening in technology and how it fits into this fast-changing world. Just 30 minutes a day with DTNS helps you understand Stand and make sense of it all. Acast is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.